So Brett, are you comfortable using legal jargon in everyday life? Affirmative. <laughs> uh, that's not legal, I guess. But yeah, when I, I do a lot you of- You don't object? I don't object. I do a lot of, um, I, I have done a lot of customer service based jobs. So I have that knack to kind of speak verbosely using just a bunch of filler language. Mm -hmm. And that's what I feel like a lot of lawyer talk is. Yeah, I would say my favorite jargony word is proprietary, uh, which feels very lawyerish. Uh, but then I'm also really interested in the law as it applies to criminal cases and movies. And, you know, there's always interesting things. For example, if you are a lawyer, a prosecutor or a detective, if I thought Sonia committed a crime, I couldn't tell you, hey, Brett, I think that the murder weapon is in your apartment. Go find it and bring it to me. Uh, all of that is illegal. And anything you found, because I told you to go find it, would be would not be admissible in court. Uh, also, you'd have to be a little bit more specific about which murder weapon. <laughs> you know, the knife with the blood yeah. on it. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, we've got a whole uh, drawer full of them. So, yeah. And even if it was a complete lock, like that, that was the weapon, Sonia could get away with it. Or, um, ooh, you know what else is a fun legal jargon word or phrase? A uh, double jeopardy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a classic. Yes. No, it's, I mean, of course there's the movie Double Jeopardy, but this idea, oh, you can't get prosecuted for the same crime twice. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's a big thing. Like a lot of podcasts I listen to, they say, you know, we had a lot of really good solid evidence, but we didn't want to try them without that smoking gun because of Double Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, well, let's bang the gavel and start this episode. This is Necromancer. Necromancer. I almost said this is Jeopardy um, because <laughs> oh, I've been no. <laughs> I've been warning Alex Trebek. Uh, my name is Shira, and I'm a fan of romantic comedies. My name is Brett, and I am a fan of horror movies. What do we do at Necromancer, Brett? Oh well, each week we review a movie. So you pick a rom com, I pick a horror. Uh, after we get done reviewing and commentating on those movies, we do a little bit of remixing. We turn the horror into a rom com and the rom com into a horror, and it is a long, arduous, tedious process that takes years and years and years of litigation before <laughs> we <laughs> before we reach the end of our episodes. Oh my God. It, can you imagine if doing these episodes took as long as a trial? We'd never, we'd never find justice. Yeah, we, we are a kangaroo court for sure. <laughs> you know, now there, in addition to kangaroo courts, there's kangaroo markets where unlike the bears and the bulls, now the market's just going up and down 
uh, with each new development, uh, it's just like a hoppy little kangaroo. Oh, I didn't know that. So if you hadn't already guessed, this week's theme is lawyers. And I'm really excited to do these movies. I I don't know. I Lawyers, best lawyer movies isn't something that I usually think of, except it is something that comes up among my brother and his friends because they're lawyers. So I've definitely stood around while lawyers talked about what their favorite lawyer movies are. And uh, Legally Blonde didn't come up because they're all men. Uh, but Michael oh, Clayton did. it's a great did. movie. What? Like... <laughs> you know, I was reading on Legally Blonde's Wikipedia that it actually... I mean, the movie came out, I think, in... Um, what is it? 2001? Or 2000? Yeah. yeah, 2001. So it's been around now for almost 20 years, and apparently it's inspired many women to go to law school. And oh, women have and women have written about how when they had tough times in the middle of law school, they'd pop in legally blonde and it's, look to Elle for inspiration. It's an extremely motivational movie. It's a very feel-good movie. And yeah, I'm sure that the more you go to law school, the more you can just appreciate the fun little jabs they take do you think michael clayton motivates lawyers no (laughs) i think there there was one time there was one time i was talking to someone about it was right when inglorious bastards came out and i'm a huge tarantino fan i think that's probably one of his best movies if not the best i was so in love with that movie and i was like you gotta go see it and this lady was like no 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 i was like no you don't know you don't understand you gotta see it and finally she was like well I've, I have some ties. My my relatives may have been in World War II on the Germany side because I'm from Germany. So I really don't want to go see a movie about Nazis and stuff. And I was like, ooh, yeah, don't go see it. But I feel like that's for lawyers in Michael Clayton. Like if you're a lawyer, don't go see Michael Clayton. It'll just <laughs> suck your soul dry. <laughs> You'll get into a taxi and just ask the driver to go anywhere. Yeah, that uh, that's always been a like ro- a romanticized kind of thing, you know. Just give the taxi driver some money and either say just drive or follow that car. And Michael Clayton, <laughs> Michael Clayton does not glamorize or romanticize the, you know, take me as far as this will get me trope. <laughs> No, he he definitely he definitely doesn't. I mean, there is something really fun about lawyer movies because it it ultimately ends up being about people and human emotions like greed and and things like that. Uh, and then it just dramatizes human relationships in just this really specific way. You know how a good example of this is anytime in a movie or TV show when somebody gets served, like served a subpoena. Um, and, you know, there's so many great movies with great courtroom scenes and testimonies. And uh, one of our movies has a huge courtroom scene, but Michael Clayton dares to be different because we never get inside the courtroom at all. I mean, we see maybe a snippet of a deposition, but they manage to go this entire movie without a single dramatic courtroom scene, which seems to be the 
it seems to be the the Joker card of any lawyer movie. Yeah, it's uh, the Reservoir Dogs of heist movies. This is the the same equivalent. You know, you never see the heist. You never get mm-hmm. to see the courtroom battle, and although there really is no courtroom battle, but yeah. Well, you never get to see Michael Clayton have his L. Woods moment. Uh, interviewing a witness in the courtroom as a hotshot lawyer that he used to be. Yeah. Although maybe in our remixes, we'll flash back to Michael Clayton's college days. Ooh. Ooh. That would be fun. So which of these movies do you want to do first? I think it would be really fun to tackle Michael Clayton first. All right, let's let's that's the order in which I watched them, because I assume that Michael Clayton was going to make me feel things or or make me face the ugly reality of being a human. Uh, And then I I already knew from my experience of Legally Blonde that it was going to be hilarious and fun. So I I saved that as my little (laughs) amuse-bouche. Yeah, I did it the other way around. <laughs> I watched <laughs> Legally Blonde first. I was like, let me get this dumb movie out of the way. And I was like, oh, actually, this was a lot better than I remember it being. This was a fun movie. And then I just, I am so in love with Michael Clayton that I was like, this movie's a masterpiece. I can't watch any movie after this movie because I'll just be totally consumed. I'll, I'll, this movie will envelop me like a, like a, a what is it? The film. It'll... <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna squirt me out of its anus is that what he said <laughs> the, the, is it is it gonna be like in ghostbusters you're like only michael clayton yes <laughs> <laughs> only zool only michael clayton uh <laughs> so i'm curious what made you gravitate towards michael clayton as opposed to say the devil's advocate Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't even think about Devil's Advocate. I've only seen that movie once. That movie's got some crazy acting in it, but I don't remember anything like it It didn't stick with me. That movie did not stick with me. Michael Clayton is a movie that definitely stuck with me. I'm a huge fan of Tony Gilroy, who's the writer-director. Um, if, if we ever do a swap episode where we get to pick the other genres, I duplicity would be on my... <gasps> On my top three choices of rom-coms to tackle, I think Duplicity is a great rom-com heist type movie. And then uh, it's on my list. I, I, you know, I have a letter. If people follow us on Letterboxd or me on Letterboxd, I have lists for all the movies we've done, uh, our recommendations, and then new to me rom-coms. And yeah. Duplicity is on there for me. So that's on my list of ones that I need to get to great movie and then i'm i'm probably in the minority here and i'm not just saying this to be a hipster cool guy but the born legacy is easily the best born movie uh so the one without matt damon is my favorite born movie i think jeremy renner's awesome in it i think rachel vice is awesome in it i think it tackles some like mk ultra government mind control type stuff and it's it's really scary as well it it hits the horror the true horror that like Michael Clayton tackles. Um, but no, we, we, the real monsters are people. That's right. <laughs> uh, we, we name dropped my cousin Vinny in one of our episodes. And it just made me think about Michael Clayton lawyer movies. I've been meaning to rewatch this movie for a while. So I said, Hey, why not? And that was it. 
That makes sense to me. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a really compelling movie and it's a different kind of thriller than say, uh, what was the Edward Norton legal thriller? Is that the advocate? Uh, uh, I don't know or, if he was in the advocate, but primal fear or primal fear. Um, yeah. but you know, there's, there, there's plenty of examples of legal thrillers. I think Cape fear qualifies as, as a lawyer thriller because I've uh, never seen either Cape fear. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> Cape fear is so much fun. I you know, know, you know, you loved how unhinged Dennis Hopper was in Texas chainsaw massacre. Well, I think that Cape fear is one of Robert De Niro's best unhinged performances, you know, right. taxi, taxi driver. He put the soup on the stove. And by the time we get to Cape fear, it's boiling. Uh, and, and he's just a, he's just a madman. Uh, <laughs> and it, and it has a really killer soundtrack. Um, but, uh, I, I'm mostly talking about the, uh, the remake. I've never seen the original. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's great. But yeah, Michael Clayton is, uh, a little quieter, <laughs> definitely standing in the back of the room while Cape Fear is shouting. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, you know, this was my first time watching the movie and I really liked it. I think like all movies over 90 minutes, I, I, time becomes very precious to me <laughs> in those last 30 minutes. It really has to feel earned. But I think that for the most part, this movie was very economical with the way that it used its time. And I think we were we were talking about it over Messenger. Both movies really could have qualified as film class examples for great pacing. Yeah, pacing and editing. I think this movie when I, when I think there's some movies that I think about and I think that they're super bloated. Like I don't. Know, I just when I when I think of Michael Clayton, I think of a two and a half hour, two hour and forty minute sort of like really big heavy drama but this movie is only two hours it's two hours on the dot and they yes. fit they cram so much in without it ever feeling really overwhelming i think it this movie definitely benefits from re from reviewing and rewatching. but um at no point does it ever really feel like i needed this more explained Right. I think similar to some of the movies that we've really, I think that have really worked for us in the past, like say the Thin Man, they managed to pack a million little details in every scene. So I think both Michael Clayton, Legally Blonde, they're so good at this, you really do get rewarded rewatching because every little detail is perfect and and, you know, necessary to telling the story. Yeah, I agree. I'm really glad that you liked it, too, because Michael Clayton can be one of those movies that are hard to recommend. But you're you're very film savvy, so it's, I think, it's a very film savvy kind of movie. Yeah, I think that this is the kind of movie that I would recommend to people who are who or who say, yeah, I'm really into film and mm -hmm. they have the kind of patience that this movie re rewards. Um, I think there's definitely people who I wouldn't recommend this to because it doesn't really reach kind of the heights of excitement 
that you would expect from something that's labeled a thriller. But if somebody told me, oh man, I love Chinatown, I'd say to that person, watch Michael Clayton. I think you'll love it. Uh, So there's definitely a a specific audience for this movie. Um, And it's the same thing, uh, sort of a different type of person when we were talking about I Saw the Devil, when I said I would recommend that movie to anyone who's like, I just want to watch something that's really going to fuck me up. Uh, It's just a real psychological mind fuck. And I'd just be like, okay, watch this movie. It's horrible. Right. (laughs) It's great, great, but it's horrible. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, should we get into the summary? I'd love to. Let's do it. All right. And the movie, of course, starts off great, too. Um, Arthur Eden calls Michael Clayton and monologues about corruption while an office room filled with lawyers frantically shuffles documents and fields phone calls from the press. So you just get an immediate picture. Uh, And then Karen Crowder, played by Tilda Swinton, is in a bathroom stall She's sweating and hyperventilating, and it you can tell that something is going on, and she's an attorney for you, North. Michael Clayton, meanwhile, is at a high-stakes poker game in a warehouse, uh, and a player at the table mentions Michael's failed restaurant. So we get a sort of idea. Michael gambles. He had this restaurant venture. It didn't quite work out. He's kind of he's being needled by this guy. But then Michael Clayton leaves. He gets a phone call about a client that hit a pedestrian. So Michael agrees to go out to see the client and he drives out of the city to meet them. Then when he meets with the client, that guy gets angry at Michael because he refers him to a trial lawyer in the area. And the client says he was promised a miracle worker. And Michael says, I'm not a miracle worker. I'm a janitor. I'm so I'm so glad you pointed out that line because it's so great. But also, there's a lot of talk in this movie about what Michael Clayton does. And mm-hmm. I still don't really know what he does. He's a fixer. He's but, the guy who comes in and he advises people on what to do next. He has a position in the company where... He's an advisor. He's not a partner, and it doesn't seem like he has any aspirations to really join the firm as a partner. He works with them on a renewed contract basis. So he has basically one foot out the door the entire time, and every time, like with the big merger, he has to renegotiate his position at the company because he's there only in an advisor capacity. He doesn't do depositions. He doesn't do trials. He, you know, he's like a ghost. I got the impression that he was asked to do some fixing early on. And it was kind of like, you know, you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. But he just was so good at it that the company, I, I get the feeling that they had the, the carrot dangling in front of him of a partner type position. Or, or something, at least a good exit package or something. Um, but know. no, I, I still don't really know what a fixer does. It, it, in context of the movie, it seems like what he does is he does private investigator work and he uncovers the dirt that he then essentially tells the company about and they cover up. So he's he's just like a he's just like a a dirty shady 
slimy, grimy, you know, he's, he's the part of the law firm that's like in the gutters doing this really dirty work. But when he says, I'm not a miracle worker, I'm a janitor that automatically instantly, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know who this guy is and you know how serious he is, how good he is, how concise he is. Uh, I, I love, I love this scene so much. It's, it sets off the movie so perfectly. It, it's perfect because you don't actually have to understand anything about what kind of lawyer Michael Clayton is. Right. All you need to know is he's the kind of lawyer who fixes messes. Uh, and it's just, uh, I, I like, this is one of those movies, again, um, <laughs> that's the sound there they of, go. <laughs> uh, of the food bowl, the cat's food bowl. So we will, we will let the little savages eat. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's a, it's an auto feeder. So when the food goes out, it has a recording of my voice going, kitties, it's time for food. <laughs> you see the little ears perk up. And... <laughs> That's great. I say, leave it in. Why not? Um... <laughs> As you wish. <laughs> So anyways, I, I, I like that this movie floats in on Michael. We hear somebody, a crazy person, essentially talking over the phone at Michael. So we know that he's someone that's important to other people. And then, of course, the first time we see him, it's just the back of his head. Of course, we know it's George Clooney, but they're, you know, they they don't give him to us right away. And then they let this other character talk about him before we even see him. Um, and then when Michael expresses himself in his own words, it's to say, hey, I'm just a janitor. So it's just, you know, again, if you're taking notes, if you're somebody who aspires to be a great writer or filmmaker, this is an amazing way to introduce a character. Uh, so Michael, he leaves and then he drives until he sees three horses off the side of the road where he then parks and he walks up to them. And as he's staring at the horses, his car explodes. You know, I was thinking during this scene that it was too early to have a man versus nature moment. You know, they <laughs> did that in Collateral, too, when the coyotes cross the road oh, and it's yeah. an omen. So I thought, you know, for the first act of a movie, really, we're getting an omen this soon, an animal omen this soon. But as we later learn, the first act and the third act are actually the same. Uh, but so we go back to four days later, I mean, sorry, four days earlier and Michael is taking his son Henry to school and learning about Henry's favorite book, Realm and Conquest, which may come up later during the remix section. Oh, uh, and meanwhile, Karen Crowder is giving an interview to the press about taking over her boss's old position at UNorth. Uh, during the interview, she receives a call about Arthur Eden, the person who called Michael at the beginning of the movie while he was having a manic episode. Uh, so he had a manic episode during a trial and he stripped naked and now he's being held at the local jail. Uh, we learned that Michael is also severely in debt over a failed restaurant because his brother spent all the money on drugs. And a loan shark tells Michael that he has a week to pay them 80 
thousand dollars. This, this uh, movie is so cliche, but never does it feel cliche. It's you know, I think that people are too people are too precious about cliches. Tropes work, yeah. and they work for a reason. And I think that you can take all of these tropes and turn them into something that's wholly unique and original to where, yeah, it's tropey, but in the end it feels unrecognizable. You know, Legally Blonde is extremely tropey as well, but they, you know, they find a way to make it work. I think in particular for genre movies, for horror and romance specifically, the audience has never felt um, critical to cliches, I think. I think, I think the kind of fans that watch the movies that we like to watch generally embrace tropes and expect them in some instances. And of course, yeah. you're happy to see them subverted, but it's never a critique, right? Yeah, but I think also tropes tropes feel better, at least, in, in a more crowd-pleasy movie, like Texas mm. Chainsaw 2 or Legally Blonde. It's easier to, like, you know, lob in the softball to hit a mega home run as opposed to this movie, which is a much more subtle kind of, you know, reward. You know, it's funny. The movie is both subtle and at points not subtle because, you know, just like the, oh, of course, Michael's in debt for gambling. You also have at the beginning of the movie, the person from Wall Street Journal saying, get me something I could print. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's very tropey and right. you could choose not to meet the movie halfway and grumble about the fact that like, Oh, that's so cliche. I mean, of course it is. Ultimately there's got to be features of this movie that are recognizable for you to buy the things that are wholly original and just bizarre, uh, which we'll, we'll get to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, Michael's in debt. Um, uh, meanwhile, the head partner, Marty Bach, uh, he also tells Michael about what happened to Arthur. So Michael goes to Minnesota to retrieve him. Uh, and then while there, Arthur reveals that he essentially has evidence to take down you North, uh, the, the important client and he plans on doing it. Uh, essentially, U-North is a company that, an agriculture company that made a pesticide that killed a bunch of people, and they knew that it would kill people. Uh, Michael, though, he convinces Arthur to go back to the hotel with him, uh, and then M Arthur manages to escape and go back to New York without Michael. Uh, and then at the same time, Karen Crowder is learning about this document that proves that U-North uh, knowingly used this pesticide that could kill people. Uh, and then under her boss, Don Jeffrey's advisement, she contacts two hitman that the company has on retainer. And does she he, do it under his advisement or does she do it? I think he gives her the contact info. I think she's trying to keep it hidden from him. Really? He gave her, he gave her the contact info, but it's kind of like a, you know, it's kind of like the transition of, you know, like the job, just kind of like, hey, if you, you know, slip this in your back pocket if you ever need it. And like right away she needs it. Right. I mean, right. He, he gave her the football and she <laughs> she was ready. She was ready to pass. Um, 
so these uh, sexy, sexy hitman, as <laughs> I wrote in my notes, bug Arthur's phone and apartment. Uh, and they overhear Arthur talking to Anna Merritt Weaver. Uh, and it's clear well, that... Wait, why do you say Merritt Weaver? Oh, that's the, the woman who plays Anna is Merritt do you, Weaver. Do you know her? Is she in other stuff? Yeah, she's in other stuff. She's a really great actress. She's a great actress. She kills it in this movie. Everyone kills it in this movie. But um, mm-hmm. no, I didn't know that. She's, I mean, everybody in this movie is is basically someone. I think, you know, Tom Wilkinson, the guy who plays Arthur, is just amazing. Oh, yeah. uh, he's so good. Um, but the yeah. president has initiated ghost protocol. Only <laughs> like Tom Wilkinson's such a great person for that because mission impossible it you know it's such a goofy line ghost protocol but oh an actor with the gravitas of tom wilkinson chewing on scenery like that oh my god he can do anything from delivering that line to delivering a monologue while holding a bunch of baguettes (laughs) He, he he's game for anything uh he could probably act underwater for all we know. Um, but uh, anyway, so they overhear Arthur talking to Anna, this woman involved with the case, and it's clear that Arthur is going to try to work against you north. Uh, Marty Bach asks Michael to reason with Arthur. So Michael catches Arthur on the street behind his apartment while he's uh, carrying an obscene amount of baguettes. I heard, uh, I heard once that like, it's kind of a, a thing. Like it's almost like a proven scientific fact that if a character is in a movie and they have a shopping bag, you have to have a baguette in it because that it's such a universal signifier that that is groceries. And then in this movie, they just, they go all out. They go all in, I should say. And they, they like, not just one baguette, 15 baguettes. I think it's also meant to be seen as, as a symptom of, of his manic state that he right. chose to buy all these baguettes. Um, so it, it, I mean, and, and yeah, I think that the movie thing too is I, I didn't actually think about that. I just was fully invested in him, uh, having an illness, which, you know, I think that this movie does a better job than others portraying mental illness with sensitivity. I think Tom Wilkinson does a really good job, but what he's going through is essentially a traumatic event. Uh, and you know, it's an extended internal crisis. (laughs) Yes. And so it's, you're not just watching, oh, how silly it is. This guy is buying a bunch of baguettes. No, his, his life has been completely destroyed by this case and it's playing out as, as this illness. Um, so anyways, they, they have it out in the alley. Arthur can't be convinced uh, and now he's also on to being bugged because Michael mentions the conversation with Anna and how did people figure this out? The only person who knew about it was him and Anna. So there has to be information leaking somewhere. 
Um, so Arthur makes a tape from a UNorth commercial and he plays it while he makes a phone call and reads the report that damns the company. Uh, and he knows that they're listening. So then Karen Crowder gives the go ahead to kill Arthur. The hitmen then go into his apartment and they make it look like a suicide. I think this is a very good action sequence because, you know, it, it's cut really fast. And then the way that it plays out, there's no background music or anything. It's just completely banal. Like these guys have done this a hundred times before and it, it has no significance, no emotion. Uh, it's completely corporate and mercenary. Yeah. This movie is very, uh, it's, it's, it's one of its like, spiritual grandfathers or fathers would be uh michael mann this movie's very michael mann and this scene in particular like you can tell that these guys rehearsed this a thousand times just to get it exactly right um this is like the true this is the scene that i think of when i think of michael clayton and horror movie as opposed to just you know the offshoot of horror that we like to go down the thriller right like this movie is a thriller but this scene in particular is a horror movie kill it is completely frightening at just how like you said how corporate it feels and how realistic it feels it completely lacks humanity and for somebody like arthur who is portrayed as being so kind so sensitive the only person who is actually fighting for what's right and showing a moral compass for him to be so profoundly misunderstood and then on top of it for him to go out this way is it's sickening in a and, horrifying way. Humans yeah, are the real monsters. He's like awake the whole time. Like they knock him out, but they don't, they don't like make him pass they shock out. him it, with a cattle prod. So, and then they give him that like breath thing. Ah, oh, so cool. But, um, but yeah, and it's all one shot, which is really like without being flashy or anything, you know? Oh, I didn't know that it was just completely just one long take. Yeah. I thought that they had some cuts in there. They, they did a really great job. Yeah. The first um, time you see it, you don't notice cause you're so invested in the, in the movie. Yeah, but after I, like I, 12 times, you got <laughs> 12 times, 12 times. I've seen this movie a bunch. <laughs> All right. Um, so Michael learns about Arthur's death and he wants to go to the apartment, but it's sealed. He goes to Marty Bach and he asks for a loan because he needs that. He still needs that 80,000 by the end of the week. Uh, and then Michael learns that Arthur booked a hotel room in New York for Anna that woman he'd been fixated on during the case. So Michael confronts Anna and it leads him to believe that Arthur did not die in a suicide. Why? And, go ahead. Oh, go. No, no, you go ahead. And the, the thing about like, when, when I hear like women are in an abusive relationship and I'm like, why don't you just leave? You know, like almost every other guy in the world, right? Like just leave the relationship. You know, lately I've started, right. Lately I've started listening to podcasts and watching true crime horror stuff. And it's like, no, you actually get, you know, Dirty John, I think does a great job of showing you like how you can't just leave 
Um, and, and Anna does a really great job of explaining, you know, like at first I thought I'd go to the airport and if the ticket wasn't there, ha 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 jokes on me. But then you know, she does a great job of like, yeah, I'm from the Midwest. I don't know anyone in the city. I came out to meet this guy who's twice my age and who's clearly crazy and stripped naked in front of me in a deposition. But she, ah, she so perfectly sums up why she's there in that hotel room. I think it's a great, great scene. Well, her whole family, I mean, her sister's alive, but I think we're meant to assume that her parents died because of the pesticide. Right. And this is personal to her. And this guy, no matter how crazy he seems, genuinely cares. Uh, and, you know, it, it, she made that leap of faith. But it, it enables Michael to kind of steal a little bit of that essence for himself because now he is invested in a similar way to the way that Arthur was. Uh, now he's now he's on the quest. Uh, so then Michael asks his brother Ray, who's a cop, about getting into Arthur's apartment. Uh, and while he's there, uh, the hitmen notice, and then they call the cops on Michael. Uh, but Michael still managed to find a clue. He found a copy receipt in the back of his son's favorite book, which Arthur had borrowed. I I thought it was really kind of sweet how Arthur and Henry had this shared experience over the book. Yeah. Uh, and it, it meant something to him. Uh, so Michael goes to the copy shop and he learns that Arthur made 3,000 copies of the report that is, you know, sensitive and is going to make you North lose this case. So then Michael prepares to share this info with Marty Bach, but then Bach reveals that the firm basically knew about the corruption already when he asks Michael to sign a three-year contract with an NDA in exchange for the money he'd asked for earlier. Uh, and so this Michael, also a great little thing, right? Like, obviously, oh, yeah, you're asking for $80,000, a little suspicious when you have all these secrets. And then his sort of like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, like, you know, one upmanship of that guy where he's like, I would have fleeced you for a lot more. Uh, great stuff. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, but ultimately, Michael decides not to give him the report because, I mean, there's it's a moot point anyways. They already know about it. But he doesn't, he, he, there's never a moment where Michael says, no, I won't do that. He right. immediately signs the contract. Yeah. It just, it, there's no, there's no tension there. Um, so then Karen learns about the copies uh, and she then gives them the go ahead to kill Michael. I guess with your second one, it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're back to the beginning of the movie, this time from the hitmen's perspective as they are installing the bomb in Michael's car while he's at the poker game. By the way, at this point, he's paid off the loan shark, so naturally he goes back to his vice because he can. Right, uh, he hasn't been to his vice in a while. He has been disciplined. He has yes. steered clear of it. But this is like, you know, after you go through something big and heavy and stressful if you're a non-smoker, but you got to have that one cigarette that you haven't had in years. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just like, you know, the whole movie, Michael is really critical of his brother who is an addict. Right. But then Michael has addiction problems, too. Uh, yeah. and they're just they're just different from his brother. Um, but by the end of the movie, he's he's off. Is it he's off the wagon? 
Oh boy. I don't know. I don't even know. <laughs> um, but anyways, his relationship to the wagon is far from solid. Uh, so anyways, Michael leaves. Uh, he's We replay him driving to the house. But this time, because we're following the hitmen, they're following Michael and they need to be within a certain range of Michael in order to detonate the bomb. And they think that they're within range and Michael's in the car when really, of course, he's outside having a spiritual moment with the horses. Because Uh, in Roman Conquest, in one of the chapters that Michael flips through, there's a a little picture of a horse by a tree. Really? That's why he goes there? I didn't realize. He's been summoned. it's It's like a summoning, you know? Ah, you know, I missed that detail. I I like that you. you That's a rewatch detail for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, Henry, Henry saved his life. Yeah. Uh, So anyways, cargo boom. uh, And Mm -hmm. Michael runs into the woods and hides. And then we later see him being picked up by Timmy, the guy he's been dogging on the whole movie for being an addict. But hey, when you need something, Michael, you're still going to call your brother. Uh, And then Michael goes to confront Karen and tells her off for trying to kill him. He gets a great line when he says, I'm not the guy you kill. I'm the guy you buy off. Yeah. Uh, And he pretends to extort money from her all while secretly recording their conversation, which, by the way, legal in New York, but totally illegal on the West Coast. That would have never flown in L.A. That would have been. I, I think that's kind of wacky. You can't record anything unless both parties know on the West no. Coast. But you also, admit that I, evidence. another trope is like you have to have the bad guy say exactly what they're going to do to incriminate themselves. You can't just mm-hmm. have them say yes. They have to say exactly what they're going to do. And his his commanding of the scene is so great because when she finally says it and then he goes, oh, you're so fucked. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So this whole time, as he's pretending to extort money, we get another trope delivery of the recorded conversation to get the evidence. Police come in and arrest Karen as Michael walks away, and then he gets in a cab, gives the driver 50 bucks to just drive. The end. The end. Or I think he says go anywhere. Or something like yeah, that. But, but any, anyways, he he gets in the car and then the credits play while we just watch George Clooney sit in a in the back of a cab. Act the shit out of a cab ride. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most dramatic cab ride that ever <laughs> happened. I have a question to ask. Why is George Clooney so bad at maintaining family connections in movies? Both here and up in the air, his family's like, why don't you come around? (laughs) Yeah, I thought about that, too. Both of these movies did a really great job at just capturing the subtle, like, intricacies of family connections. Yeah, I mean, of course... Michael's a lawyer, his brother's a cop, and you can imagine how fun that was when he was the prosecutor and his brother was the cop. I would love it if his brother was working the same beat in Queens while Michael (laughs) was uh, trying cases as a prosecutor. That, that, That would be a cool prequel. I missed the opportunity to say wild horses couldn't tear him away from those horses. Um... 
Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I have to say about this movie. Oh, the turtleneck corduroy blazer combo. Definitely my favorite Michael Clayton look. Not as many outfits as Legally Blonde, but definitely a couple memorable ones. Yeah. Uh, Michael Clayton looks super sharp. George George Clooney looks good in a suit. Uh, Anything else you want to say about Michael Clayton before we talk crushes? Uh, I think this is the kind of performance that really, like, you know, sometimes when people say only so-and-so could do this performance, this really does feel like only George Clooney could have pulled off this performance. Because you got to have a guy who is just likable and knows people and knows how to talk to people. Like, there's so many moments in this movie where he he is not happy with the answers or he he needs to go over someone's head but he'll just cut a conversation short and just go like, yeah, you're the secretary. You're not going to be able to help me. And he just goes, you know what? Thank you. Bye. Leaves and then does whatever he has to do. But you know, this movie has, it's got like uh, whatever his character's name and out of sight was or Danny ocean. Like this is the fun guy who is always one step ahead of everyone and is like, BSing his way to the final big moment. Uh, and George Clooney, he's got so many roles like that, but just to, to be able to like turn the dial in the other direction and go from like super fun, charming to super skeezy charming is, I think is good acting. He's not just a handsome face. Well, I feel the thing that George Clooney's unique appeal to me is similar to how you describe William Powell in The Thin Man, or I think it's it's similar to Cary Grant, too. It feels a little bit more classic, a little bit more cool, a little yeah. bit more like Spike Spiegel. I think that Clooney is a Spiegel type. Where I definitely agree. He's... He's funny and he's charming, but he's also cool and even just when it, so competent. Yeah, even when it looks like he's not paying attention, he's absorbing and taking in everything. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think a total, total Spike Spiegel type. Agreed. So who did you have a crush on? Oh boy, did I have a crush on Dennis O'Hare in this movie, who is the the, <laughs> the opening, angry client. the angry client man? Because it's so perfect. He he is that kind of guy who is rich and has spent his life buying his way out of everything and he getting what he wants. The guy, but the way that he is such an asshole to George Clooney, and the way George Clooney takes it. And then just reverses it on him where he's like, listen, the cops love hit and runs. They're already pulling the paint shifts off the the guardrail and it's for a specialized Jaguar, one of a kind. He's like, you don't, he's like, there's nothing for me to cover up here. You just need a good lawyer. And a good lawyer could probably get this guy off with like nothing. Um, But just, you know, like, and then when he's talking to his wife and he's like, why did they make the road, whatever. And then the way she throws the glass. Oh, I loved when she threw the glass. I think I might have written something like, throw that glass. Yeah. Yeah, Because he he addresses her and she ignores him. And then this, and then when he keeps going into that, like, why did this happen to me thing, you know, uh, blaming the circumstances and not his own actions. And she throws the glass. The movie takes just a perfect 
beat. You know when they put in the script beat? It's it's you you feel it. You just feel that perfect beat of the movie going like throw the glass in the movie going pause. Yep, it's that kind of movie and then boom, George Clooney picks it right back up. Ah, Dennis O'Hare. And then I didn't know who this guy was, but I think he's got to be more of a, a stage actor. Like he has that he again, he has that instant gravitas. Probably not that many people know who Dennis O'Hare is, but he's going up against George Clooney, one of the biggest mega A-list Hollywood stars of all time. And Dennis O'Hare immediately steps up and goes jab for jab, punch for punch with oh, George Clooney. Yeah. And he's great in uh, Duplicity, which is the next movie that Tony Gilroy did. So it's it's just Dennis O'Hare. Like, what a, what a hidden gem of an actor that you could he's- just slide into any movie, probably. <laughs> Well, he's also well loved by Ryan Murphy. He's in I I don't know if he's in every season of American Horror Story, but he's in a lot of them. And, you know, he's he's done a whole range of different characters. He's a brilliant actor. Yeah. And then he has kind of the 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 toughest uh, assist, which is giving it to George Clooney before he gives the best line of the movie. I'm right. not a miracle worker. I'm a janitor. And I, I it's, also <laughs> it's up to him to make sure that um, George Clooney gets the dunk. Yeah, you're right. It's a perfect setup. Alley-oop. It's a perfect, it's a perfect setup. Yeah. Uh, but um, my favorite line in the whole movie has got to be, I am Shiva, the god I of death. I knew you would say that. I <laughs> oh knew the god. destroyer. Yeah, I knew you'd say that. And I like that Arthur says that. And then uh, Michael Clayton says it at the end. Right. Oh, it's so pro. Because they got that subtle one. Or they got that, not subtle, but yeah, they got that little one-upmanship of like, do this, do this, do that. And then it's like, it's the trump card. You can't top Shiva, the god of death. What are you going to say to that? Yes, it it was a it was a great line, uh, and so, and I'm sure that they knew it was great when they were writing it. Can I take a stab at who is your crush? Sure, Anna. As much as I love Merritt Weaver, no, I oh. really love Tom Wilkinson as oh, yeah. Arthur Eden. Uh, you know, it's his voice that opens the movie. Uh, and it, and he's the person who's ultimately at the center of the plot because he's the one that needs to be stopped. And then after he stopped, Michael Clayton takes the torch and then he's the one who needs to be stopped. Uh, but I, I thought that he was brilliant in this role and I think it was impossible not to care for him. Yeah, his existential crisis monologue where he talks about being covered in the film and the slime and he talks about like, is this the culmination of me? <laughs> like, is mm-hmm. this what I was sent here to do? Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's the kind of humanity that you wish more politicians in this day and age had where it's like, you just like, how do you sleep with yourself? You know, like, how does someone like Tom Wilkinson sleep with himself knowing that he's covering up blatant murder uh 
he doesn't. That's and he answer. doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one uh, before I forget, one more thing that I'd like to say about this movie. I think that one thing that good movies that are focused on one big character do really well is make you worry about what happens for that character after the movie. And even though, you know, Michael Clayton is able to win in the end, we get to the taxi and then it's fate unknown. And you don't know if Michael Clayton is going to get back into gambling or get on the right side of things, spend more. It's, it's completely up to fate, whether or not his, it's going to be a good one or a bad one. And then the movie has made you spend two hours caring about exactly what happens to him and that you, you stay with that. Yeah, I agree. It's a really, it's, it's one of those movies that uh, I will sit through the credits. Cause I'm just, my mind is just soaked. It's soaked in cinema. 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 All right. So rom-com remixes of Michael Clayton. Was this hard? Was this easy? How was it for you? Uh, this one was, I think this one was easier than the horror version of Legally Blonde. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, because I took a lot of inspiration from Legally Blonde to mix in with Michael Clayton. So once I... I once I had that immediate idea that Michael Clayton was going to college, the movie just kind of started clicking. Oh, Michael Clayton's college years. I didn't even think about that, but it's funny that you drew from legally blonde for your, uh, Michael Clayton remake, because I did the same thing for legally blonde where (laughs) I just, uh, We'll we'll say I took more than a little inspiration from Michael Clayton to make my uh, Legally Blonde remix. I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, I also kind of, I I liked, I'm not a big Bond fan, um, but I liked, you know, how Bond, he's a, he's a, he's a sexy man who sleeps with a lot of sexy ladies. Um, And then when Casino Royale came out, they kind of had this, I thought Eva Green did a great job of of making Bond care about one lady. And well, that's then, the reason he's a slut, because there's only been one woman. Right. So he he really cared for her. And then he was like, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to let my armor down again. I'm not going to get hurt again. I'm just going to put up this wall and be sexy, man. Um, but exactly. I kind of I wanted to do that here. Like you see someone who's really jaded. I wanted to give them. You know what I mean? I want to give them that kind of prequel that shows why they might have gone down that path. Oh, you want to give Michael Clayton his innocence back? Yeah, his origin story of, yeah. Well, now I got to hear it. Let's All let's right. get into it. So my movie is called Mikey Sino. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Mikey Sino. Uh, we start out with Michael Cino? Clayton. C-note, you know, like $100 bill. Yeah, like a Mikey C-note. Hey, throwing around them hundreds. Oh. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so Michael, Michael, he's a straight-laced boy. He is, uh, he's a good boy. And he has a girlfriend who also seems like a straight-laced girl. But really, 
she's evil. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so they go to the same law school together and they have the, the girlfriend comes up with this idea. Um, I'll just call the girl Karen, right? Because that's the name from the movie, the lady name from the movie. So okay. Karen has this idea where she is going to, uh, she's going to be like the, I don't know what you call it, the valid Victorian, the valid Victorian of the, of her class. She's going to be the best of the class because this college has a tradition of at the end of every year, they have a parade with these floats and the best of the year gets to be on the parade flow and it's like a good job thing because you know it's like oh i was on the parade flow for this like school. homecoming queen yeah she's basically homecoming queen of law school um and she she sets up this idea that she wants to um oh wait i'm sorry i, I i'm telling this like a bad joke like a, a dad telling a bad joke i have to i wanted to uh to uh <laughs> to set this movie up like michael clayton where uh there's an explosion at the beginning and then we cut back at the end <laughs> so so the beginning it starts with karen on the float she's in the parade she's waving she's happy and all that and then like the we stick on her her float which is at the end of the parade and the parade stops and it's like, you know, then there's some hustle bustle. So like we see at the beginning of the parade, some hustle bustle. And then the, like all the, 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 I don't know, the gibberish and all the crowd noise starts picking up, you know, as it gets closer to her. And as people start talking to each other, what's going on, what's going on. And then, you know, the lady's like, uh, something's wrong, something's wrong. And just as she's about to like get up or do something, the, the float explodes Ah. Then we cut to four weeks earlier and we show Clayton with his girlfriend and they go to college. And so she comes up with this plan where she is going to get dirt on everyone in college to uh, to to secure her spot as the parade float lady. And what she's going to do is she she convinces Michael, like in the real movie, that if he if he takes one for the team now, she'll she'll have his back later. So ah. what he's gonna do is he's gonna go to the Animal House esque frat and and work the the gutter of the school while she tackles the high class crowd at the school. So she's gonna become part of the fancy sorority and mingle with the high class people and get dirt on them, schmooze her way into the inner circles while he has to work the dirty, skeezy people. And Janitor whatnot. stuff. Janitor stuff. So he, he talks to his roommates, and she's pressing him to get really shameful stuff on them, like really personal stuff. And so he's got to talk to his roommates and, and get close to them. And the more he gets to know them, of course, the more he starts to care for them. Uh, and we see her like sleeping around and like sleeping her way with ladies and guys. She'll do whatever it takes to get to the top. And she gets like more superficial dirt on people. Uh, when it comes to the professors, we can have like a fun little, um, fun little like Mission Impossible-esque mini montage of Michael Clayton have to like, he's got to do these really complicated heists to get into these professors offices while again, she's just like sleeping her way around with all the professors or, you know, like hitting up the professors who are more laid back instead of the strict ones. And then uh, we get an internship, right? We, we, we are escalating the, the uh, college experience. So he's got an internship and we do a very better call Saul 
Is he gonna uh, ever meet a good girl? No, never. Wait, well, this is we, supposed to be a rom com. There's no Luke Wilson for him. N- no, we can work what? that in. We can we can find a way to work that in. Uh, I don't know. I didn't I didn't think of the 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 relationship aspect of this rom com. I just like all of this sounds really heavy, but we're gonna do it in a really fun, light way. We're gonna be really silly, like Animal House or. Legally I blonde. mean, so in his frat adventures, is that how he becomes Mikey C-Note? Yeah, so, uh, so he comes from a very well-to-do family, the same as his girlfriend. So there's a lot of expectations on him to do really well. So him taking the janitor route is very risky for him, but he trusts his girlfriend. He loves his girlfriend, you know. Um, and... All, all, while, while she's doing all of the behind his back stuff, we'll have instances where they meet together and like, it's really cute, but also she'll like throw in this one jab of, you know, like, you got to get more dirt, Michael. He's like, oh. Um, okay. So in order for this to be a rom-com, I would say after every terrible scene with Karen, there needs to be a scene where Anna says or does something that Mikey likes. Okay, we can fit that in for sure. I don't know I don't know who she will be, but we will fit that in. Maybe she's like a campus hippie. She wants to be an environmental lawyer. I got gotcha. you. Oh, maybe she can be one of the library rats. I had uh, this idea that there's people who like dropped out of lawyer school but they they hide and camp out in the library because it's probably a big huge library full of all these law books and what they do is like they're they're very uh they're very thorough with their their searches of the law books so people will come in and find these library rats and like pay them under the table to find these really obscure laws for them and so it's like a hidden underground of of you know dropouts but they they find a niche for themselves so maybe she can be a library rat interesting Um, and michael's really nice to her of course because most people treat them like like they're garbage or you know uh like they're better than them uh and so we get the better call Saul internship where michael learns some more skeezy tactics you know the slip on ice tactics and whatnot and then he he ends up working for the committee um his girlfriend karen gets him a job on the committee and he has to defend this manufacturer of really dangerous items, um, hardware type items, because Karen wants the best flow ever. And so she wants to get a discount on all these items. And the only way to get a discount on all these items and fit the budget of the school while simultaneously having the school's best flow ever of all time is to defend this bad company in court and she makes michael clayton do it somehow uh okay so we'll work it out um and then here's the part where we start to elevate things somehow michael finds out karen is a traitor she she never had any plan maybe she has another boyfriend right who's more serious who she plans on working with uh who's like a better connection for her career wise and will help get her higher in the the whatever um so he finds out that she's a traitor he's evicted from his dorm or his uh you know his frat house and all of his roommates find out that he's a bad guy so he ends up going to the library and sleeping in the library and that's where he meets up with anna again one of the the library Mm -hmm. rats and they connect they talk and then she puts the whole library rat network it's like uh john wick you know how john wick has this hidden underworld of 
shipmen oh, everywhere. Like Hotel Artemis or whatever. Right. And so she gets all her team going and they're, they're, they're scouring the library for this one thing. And so then we cut to Michael Clayton in the middle of the street. Um, and we know Karen wants to have it. We, we set up earlier in the, the movie that Karen wants to have her float at the press booth. You know how like every parade, they got a little press thing where it's Wait, Michael Clayton's going to kill her. All right. Well, here we go. So she wants to be at the press booth and during golden hour, you know, golden hour, the sun is at just the right thing for all the best lighting for film and, and photos and whatnot. So she wants to be at the, she's got it all timed out. So she has to start the parade early to hit the, the golden hour photo booth section and, uh, or, or something like that. And Michael Clayton, we cut to him in the middle of the street and he's blocking the parade so she misses her moment. And that's what the parade stopped for at the beginning of the movie. And then, like, the president of the school comes out or the dean of the school. And he's like, what are you doing? And Michael claims, like, well, this is my right. I can do this. And they find some really obscure law in the state. You know how every state has their own very obscure laws. Like, I think in Alabama, it's illegal to tie an alligator to a fire hydrant or something. Well, that's just animal cruelty. Right. Uh, so we we make up some reason. And essentially, yes, uh, uh, Karen gets blown up in the in the flow, but it's very dark man style where you see his body come screaming up and it's Liam Neeson on fire going, well, there's an explosion behind him. <laughs> uh, and then she lands in something. So and it's very cartoon blow up. You know, she's got all the, the, the black dust on her face and her hair is all frizzled and her outfits all poofed out and flay, uh, frayed. So it's, it's very much like that. And then we get a very legally blonde, moment at the end of like Mikey C-Note went on to become a really disgruntled guy who works for this law firm and you know we, we see where everyone ends up and then he got married had a kid got divorced <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, so yeah that's my that's my rom-com of how Mikey C-Note became Michael Clayton my only production note is that we we need more romance. Duly noted. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be in the that'll be in the uh, rewrite for sure. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I didn't really flesh out the romance of of mine that much, uh, but I I also I didn't go into quite too much detail. Uh, it had more to do with Michael repairing his relationship with his son. Okay. Okay. So I did the, I did the prequel. You did the sequel. Uh, yeah. You know, some, something like that, or, or, you know, it's more like uh, what could have been. Right. If we sprinkled in a little magical realism. <laughs> Uh, so I called this movie, the conquest of Michael Clayton. All right. And so we got Michael Clayton, fixer for a law firm. He's so busy with work that he often neglects his son, Henry, just like Liar Liar. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Henry, he's a boy with a rich imagination. And all he wants from his father is for him to read his favorite book with him. The Medieval Fantasy, Realm and Conquest. 
so Henry slips the book into Michael's briefcase, uh, wishing that Michael would get into the story and they can share the experience. Uh, Michael takes Henry with him to the office because he needs to meet with Arthur Edens, a senior litigation partner, and Karen Crowder, the general counsel for the firm's biggest client, U North. And then while they're meeting, Henry is left in the care of a secretary in the other room. Mm. Uh, and then the meeting goes on for hours, and Michael forgets that Henry is there. Uh, and then he remembers hours later just when he goes into the briefcase and he pulls out Realm and Conquest. And he's like, what's nice. this? And then as soon as he realized, oh my God, Henry, that's when Michael, Arthur, and Karen get sucked into the book. Oh no. <laughs> uh -oh. We got a Jumanji on our hands. Yeah, no, they got, they got, <laughs> they got Jumanji'd. Uh, I should have said that from the beginning. Um, but uh, so Henry then comes in and he sees that they're all gone. And then he picks up the book and Jumanji like notices that the pages are morphing before his eyes. Oh, yeah. And then he turns back to the beginning of the story and starts to read. His dad and the two other lawyers are trapped in the book. Uh, and so then we've got the three lawyers they're completely freaking out because, you know, they're just in a grassy field uh, and they're like, where are we? And then that's when a black knight comes up out of nowhere and begins threatening them. And then the only person who's actually read the book is Arthur. So <laughs> while Karen and Michael are just freaking out, Arthur decides to take on the black knight and then taking a chance Arthur extends his hand and he manages to zap the Black Knight. And he says, I figured one of us has to be a mage. So apparently Arthur in this new setting is able to use magic. I think Tom Wilkinson has wizard mage written all over him. I, I feel like he can convince us of ghost protocol. He can, right. he can cast lightning spells. Uh, so then, of course, Michael tries to use magic, but then nothing happens when he does it. Uh, and then Karen wonders if they're going to be punished uh, for defending a company that uh, knowingly makes toxic pesticides. Like maybe that's why they're all here because of this unethical thing that they're doing. And then Michael says, no, he knows it's because he wasn't there for Henry and he's sorry for putting everyone through this. And then back in the real world, Henry is reading uh, just like Bastion and Never Ending Story. And he's tearing up, but he's saying, keep going, Dad, you can do it. Um, so they're in it, they're in it together in their own way. So then Arthur tells Michael that he thinks they oh. can get out of the book. Oh, sorry. You, I don't know. This this could not fit based on where you're going. But you know how, like in the book. There's the Arthur's highlighting a bunch of stuff. What mm -hmm. if what if the only way Henry could communicate with the people trapped inside the book was by highlighting? And so like he could give them little breadcrumbs of, you know, like that something. would be it, cool. <laughs> yeah, so like an would... item glows. Like he could highlight the lamp and then the lamp glows in the thing there. Or what if it if he wrote notes in the margin and they right. appeared like skywriting? <laughs> 
Okay. So while they're outside, you know, so there's some way for them to communicate. But there's got to be like a magical Twitter limit or something. Because you couldn't just write everything you want. It's got to be like only certain words are approved or something. Right, right. right. Um, but, you know, there's, I think most of the humor in the story just comes from the fact that these are three lawyers, fish out of water, that have been cast into this swords and sorcerers. Uh, medieval adventure. Uh, and some of them are better adapted to mm -hmm. it than others. And Michael is the least adapted to this environment. Uh, so then Arthur tells Michael that he thinks that they can get out of the book if they get to the ending and defeat the evil wizard. So the trio agree to help each other and they start bonding in a way that they didn't when they were working on the case. Uh, and I don't have a lot of detail on this middle act, but we'll just say that the trio adventures, Arthur uh, has this great mage skill, and maybe Karen's really good at sword fighting. Tilda Swinton can do anything. Um, and then meanwhile, Michael appears to be good at nothing. And he just <laughs> hates that he's not useful. And of he course. But he swears he's going to get back to Henry and be the dad that he wasn't. He's truly starting to, to change. And because he's starting to change and become more sensitive, Karen is starting to fall for this uh, evolved version of Michael. Uh, she sees that she's really trying. And then she also offers to help teach him how to fight. And maybe that can be a cute bonding moment, but then Michael really sucks at, at it. Maybe they practice throwing knives and she's really great, but he's terrible. Uh, but then they get overtaken by bandits. Uh, Karen and Arthur are captured. Uh, and then Michael has an idea in his George Clooney way, he is able to bluff them out of captivity, and then the bandits agree to take them on as, you know, mercenaries rather than rob them. So Michael realizes that, in a way, he needs to embrace who he is. He's a he's talker. He's a fixer. And that's not going to change. Yeah, he's like the lawyer version of a bard. Right, exactly. And whether he's in a fantasy world or the real world, he can't deny that this is an essential part of who he is. He can be somebody who's sensitive and cares, but he's still George Clooney, and you can't get past that. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> We'll just say that more stuff happens. Uh, but maybe there's some additional real-world pressure, like maybe Henry's mom is threatening to sue for full custody if Michael doesn't show up and explain himself. Uh, and then maybe Arthur in the fantasy world is saying that he doesn't want to go back uh, and that he doesn't want to defend you north. Uh, and Michael's maybe trying to bargain with him, like, well, if we do the right thing when we leave, will you go back then? Uh, but then with all these tensions high, we make it to the base camp for the wizard's castle night before the big battle. Karen asks if they think dying here will mean that they can't go back. Yeah. Uh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Karen. <laughs> and then Michael tells her it's useless to think about these questions. 
but then, of course, she says if they can't go back, then she wants him to know that she really cares about him. Uh, and then, of course, Michael says with the meaningful look, because, you know, George, you know, talking about actors who know how to give the look as in the I'm falling in love with you look. I mean, George Clooney could could do it with his eyes closed. <laughs> but uh, he says to her with the look, uh, we will make it back. Uh, and then Arthur, of course, has decided already he's not going back because you always got to have that one person that stars behind that stays behind, uh, like Stargate. Um, Just like spoilers, but Jumanji <laughs> the sequel, Jumanji 2, welcome to our... Oh, does one of them decide to stay? Does one of them decide to stay in Jumanji land? You better believe it. (laughs) (laughs) So we get the climactic battle. Um, Maybe ideally, I would have worked the wizard into the plot more, but I just didn't. Um, But assume that he's a built out character. uh, And then Michael uses his manipulative tactics to redirect the wizard's army to another location, leaving the castle undefended, you know, clever Odysseus stuff. Uh, And then Arthur and Karen uh, finish off the wizard, but then Karen gets injured Uh, And then Michael goes to her. He's upset. It's not supposed to be like this. Karen says that he needs to make it back for Henry. And then Michael says, not without you. He's holding her. He's yelling at Arthur that nothing's happening, even though they killed the bad guy. And why? Uh, And then, of course, Michael's you know, just having a whole Charlton Heston moment, saying he's sorry about for what he did to Henry. And then Arthur realizes what he has to do. He turns to Michael and Karen and then fires at them just as Michael asks, what are you doing? Uh, so Arthur had the power to send them home all along, just like the Wizard of Oz. Uh, and then Michael and Karen are returned to the real world without him. Uh, but when they reappeared, they're in Henry's bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Michael Michael hugs Henry uh, and says things are going to be different. Uh, and then Henry says, I know, because you're in love. And then uh, Michael and Karen are all embarrassed. Uh, and then we get the happy rom-com epilogue with Michael and Karen and Henry walking around the museum when they see a medieval painting with a man that looks like Arthur in it. Oh, I love it. Boom. The Mic end. Drop. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, I really like that. I like the idea, yeah, of fish out of, I'm not a big fan of fish out of water stories, but I think the best ones work when you have very strong, well-defined characters coming from a, a very specific point of view, having to deal with circumstances that normally don't have that point of view. So normally when you're in the middle of a medieval battle or something or quest you're not thinking about the lawyerly aspects of how to get in and out of situations um yeah so i think that's i think that's a really rich idea for a story and uh there was a podcast that i know about uh it's sort of a a friend of a friend's podcast and it's called tldm a dnd dm podcast where they talk about like they, they talk about D and D from a DM's point of view and, oh. and they started doing, I think they had a couple episodes where they released an actual session, 
Uh, and one of the sessions, because they're all improvised, they're all like from Chicago and do Chicago improv and stuff like that. So they had a session where their, their lawyers uh, or where they got in trouble in a town and thrown in jail. And instead of like busting their way out or whatever, they decided to go to court and fight it. And so, so they went to court and you know how like in the old days you had to wear the wigs to court. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in medieval D&D world, they were like, you have to talk with a Southern accent because it's customary in, in court to do that. But they, they had a whole entire episode where they just had to lawyer their way out of a situation. And I thought it was extremely funny. Um, so, yeah. That's a <laughs> remix that I could get into, uh, D&D litigation. Yeah, I love that. Um, we're going to kind of skirt some of that maybe in the in the Legally Blonde remix, but yeah, I I really like that idea. Thank you. Well, let's uh, go ahead and land this plane. Before we get into our love bites, let's tell you where you can find us on the great big internet. Uh, We are on Facebook and Twitter at NecromancerPod. You can email us at necromancer at gmail, or sorry, necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. And you'll also find us on the Instagrams at the Necromancer Podcast. Please reach out to us with thoughts, feedback. We're game for it all. Lawyers. That's Litigation. Uh, if we're violating any copyright laws, definitely take it up with us over email. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't think we do. I, I give credit to where, where it is due. Uh, all right. So love bites. What would you like to recommend this week? Uh, well, lately I've been watching a couple David Fincher movies. You know, he's got that mank mank is coming oh. out in December. Uh, so the story about the writer of uh, Citizen Kane and, you know, Michael, uh, D- um, David Fincher is a perfectionist when it comes to like of the era specific accurate stuff. So it's going to be like a 1930s Hollywood crazy specific David Fincher movie. So I'm trying to get myself pumped up for it. And I watched uh, Gone Girl and I got to say uh, Gone Girl is a pretty great movie. <laughs> Are you a cool girl, Brett? I am. I try I try as hard as I can be to be a cool girl. Uh I yeah, I thought it was a great movie. I'd seen it only when it came out, so I rewatched it. Uh I think the sex scene between Rosamund Pike and Neil Patrick Harris is one of the most insane scenes I've ever seen in any movie ever. It you've seen it, right? No. Oh my God. You've got to see it. Um, but well, yeah, also I, got I, I thought, you know, when I texted my mom after I'd seen it, cause she'd read the book. So I was like, Hey, is that scene like it is in the book? Uh, I was like, you know, I really appreciated uh, Ben Affleck's sister in the movie this time around. And she was like, Oh yeah, Carrie Coon. So much like how you mentioned Anna's actress. I was like, Oh, you know her. And she was like, Oh yeah. She's in the leftovers. And she was in this. She's and, great. Uh, yeah, I didn't know who Carrie Coon was. Um, so I thought, yeah, Carrie, like uh, the sister I thought was great in the movie, but everyone's great in the movie. Yeah, and then and then I rewatched Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and I gotta say, mm, I don't know. But it's Gone right. Girl, you heartily recommend. Heartily recommend. And, I mean, Social Network, another lawyer movie that, 
you know, no, no courtroom stuff, but a lot of deposition stuff. So, yeah, good stuff. How about you? What movie or show or book or thing would you like to recommend? So since I didn't choose it as a movie to review, even though I thought about it, I'd like to recommend My Cousin Vinny. It is a really effective, well-written comedy. Joe Pesci's hilarious. Um, Marissa Tomei is hilarious. Um, the Karate Kid has a side bit as oh, yeah. one of the accused. Uh, and I think that... Vinny and Elle Woods have a lot in common as being yeah. characters that people underestimate and look down on as being coarse or, you know, being, um, you know, ill-fitted for their role as lawyers. And then they work really hard to show people that they belong where they are and they ultimately prove themselves. And, you know, I don't think we would have gotten the dramatic courtroom scene that we get in um, Legally Blonde without the great courtroom scene, the great comedic courtroom scenes that we get in My Cousin Vinny. It, it you know, provides the sort of precursor to a lot of great funny uh, lawyer movies to come. So if you've never seen My Cousin Vinny, it's absolutely worth watching. Yeah, extremely quotable extremely fun extremely crowd pleasing and satisfying great movie all right well until next time court is adjourned Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.